I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us on the line today from Cape Town is Miss Lauren Bukas, who is an award-winning, international, best-selling novelist who also writes comics, screenplays, TV shows. Her novels include The Shining Girls, Broken Monsters, and her book Zoo City, which have been translated into 23 languages and are being developed for film and television. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Um, as you were reciting all of those things that the show is about, I was like, yes, those are all things that I'm very much into. And I didn't realize that you had published a book called Maverick, Extraordinary Woman from South Africa's Past, spanning 350 years of history. So if we have time, it's definitely something that I'd like to plug into a little bit more. Absolutely. To begin with, you won the Arthur C. Clarke Award, the University of Johannesburg Prize, the August Derleth Award for Best Horror, the Strand Critics' Choice Award for Best Mystery Novel, the RT Thriller of the Year and Mbukodo Award. Your work has been praised by the likes of Stephen King, George R. R. Martin, James Elroy, and Gillian Flynn, as well as the New York Times, The Guardian, the list goes on and on. Those are all incredibly impressive achievements. Can you share with us a few of those landmarks in your career and when you realized that creative writing would be such a big part of your destiny? Well, even when you say it now, they all seem kind of surreal. It's hard for me to take that stuff seriously. I, I tend to take individual conversations more seriously. I mean, it's strange that Stephen King would read my book. It, it blows my mind. I can't really understand it. So I think the most momentous moments for me are really, you know, where I have somebody come up to me after a reading and say to me, listen, the violence in The Shining Girls was horrifying, but you got it right. And it meant so much to me as a survivor of something terrible which happened to me. And that is the most humbling and insane and wonderful thing which which happens. Um, winning the RC Clark was, it changed my life. I went from being super broke and my book was about to go out of print to suddenly getting a huge book deal, being able to have my books translated into all these different languages across the world. And it was just amazing. But I think what was really good for me was coming home and having my then three-year-old just want to climb on my head because that just brought me back to earth. You know, it's like, yes, great, you won this wonderful prize, um, you've got all this media attention, and that's fabulous, but at the end of the day, you are just you and your mom, and this is what really matters, and that's what you got to kind of hang on to is, I guess, some sense of humility and grounding. So your daughter is a grounding force and keeps it real. Absolutely. Yeah, she, um, she she takes me down all the time. Um, we were going to write a book together, but then she's decided that actually she wants J.K. Rowling to do it. Um, <laughs> I was like, great, that's great, thanks. So she knows her authors already and is clearly a Harry Potter fan. She is, she is indeed, um, and a very fierce young feminist. She's great. She calls me out on stuff all the time. It's wonderful. Uh, she's eight now, not three anymore. Can you tell us a little bit more about your, your writing process in terms of what sparks your creativity? So um, to come back to what something you were saying earlier or asking about earlier, I knew I wanted to be a writer when I was five years old. And I found out that you get paid to make up stories, that that was a real job that you could have. 
and that some people, people like Ina Blyton and Roald Dahl had actually made a lot of money doing that. And I was like, well, that's it. You know, um, forget astronauts or vets or whatever else I was considering at the time. That I want to be a writer. I want to tell stories. And it's ta- it only took like 30 years to get to the point where I could do that full time. But it's a remarkable privilege to be able to write for a living and to be in a position where I can actually get paid to do this full time, especially on the continent. Um, African writers, there's a lot of stuff about like what we are supposed to write about. You know, it's supposed to be about poverty. And, and I don't know if you saw that wonderful meme about two years ago about the acacia tree covers. Please tell us more. Um, it was absolutely wonderful. It looked at books about Africa, even if it was set in places where there aren't acacia trees. And they all featured acacia trees on the cover. And it's this idea of what Africa is and what it's allowed to be. Um, and it has to be these stories about, like, you know, either about poverty or child soldiers or AIDS or animals. And we see it so often, you know, even in a movie like the original Tomb Raider, you know, Lara Croft goes to Venice and then she goes to Cambodia and then she goes to Africa. And it's this concept of this place which is just mystical and strange and it's, one of the biggest continents on Earth, and we try to reduce it to one thing all the time. It's so frustrating. Stereotypes and the fact that, as you say, when you talk about Venice, you talk about Cambodia, for instance, in the Lara Croft, those are identified places. But yet Africa is regarded as this amorphous mass as opposed to the unique composition of our different cultures and different countries that contribute to it. Absolutely, and I have a big problem with this idea of Afrofuturism as well, because Afrofuturism seems to mean anything which doesn't comply with that stereotype, anything which involves technology um, or kind of futuristic or science fiction-y designs is suddenly lumped under one umbrella term. And I don't think you would have seen that in other countries. You know, there's certainly no, no Eurofuturism. It's just accepted as futurism, it's, it's, and that's another reductive way of looking at Africa, and I find, it, I find all of this stuff very frustrating. Um, so to come back to what you were actually asking about the writing process, I tend to write with other people in that I go to a space, a shared office space with friends, and I, I write there. And that's great for me because it means I have to get out of bed and out of my pajamas and take the work very seriously and get dressed up and be out in the world. And it also means it's more of a nine-to-five, which is much more kind of sane. than if you work from home, it's very easy to be working all the time. Where I get my ideas from is the stuff which makes me angry. That's what inspires me and provokes me and kind of threads itself through my writing. And a lot of my writing deals a lot with social issues. You know, The Shining Girls is about a time-traveling serial killer. But what it's actually about is the way we talk about violence against women. It's about um, how much things have changed for women over the, over the course of the 20th century, the mistakes of history which come up again and again. And using these crazy devices like time travel is a really interesting way of unpacking some of the issues which I feel we have issue fatigue about. We get bored and frustrated and depressed looking at what's happening in the real world. And fiction allows an escape, but it's an escape into another reality where you're forced to deal with those things in a way you might not have been able to previously because it's about empathy, because it's about experiencing someone else's world and and being inside someone else's head. You mentioned that emotions as one of the strengths that sort of ignites your writing process, particular issues that you're angry about and the social side. 
And we know recently in the South African press in particular there's been highlights of the issues of violence against women and almost the increase of femicide. Given these types of social issues that are taking place, do you see this as being fodder for another book or another story? You know, all my books are feminist and um, a lot of my books, especially Broken Monsters and The Shiny Girls and the new one that I'm working on, deal a lot with um, with broken masculinity and this idea of what men are allowed to be by society and how much damage that causes to them and to us. And it's this idea that men should be powerful. And when you take that power away or you put them in a role where they feel that they don't have power or they're humiliated, they take that out on the people they're supposed to love. And the recent events in South Africa, it's nothing new is the worst of it. It's just that we are now angrier and more outspoken, and it comes back to this broken masculinity, to this idea that men have to be powerful, that they have to prove themselves, that they are sexual and strong and in control. And I think the radicalism that we're seeing, the right-wing radicalism around the world, I think comes back to that, that it comes back to men feeling powerless. And it, it's a really strange phenomenon on men feeling powerless when women have traditionally felt powerless and there is a battle for power. And I think that in our world today that we deal with multidimensionality. You know, in the past, if you go back to the 50s, it would have said this is the role that a woman performs, this is the role that a man performs. Mm-hmm. But over time, those boundaries have dissipated and people are doing more. They're not just defined by one context of of their life. So I think that we have these conflicts that are ongoing between what society defines and what those stereotypes are versus what individuals want to make of their own lives. Absolutely. Um, It's very frustrating and I'm not sure how we get back to a better place. Or back to, I don't know if we've ever been in a better place. I mean, you know, we, we've had giant strides forward at the moment, but there's a pushback as well. As soon as you see major progressive movements, there's immediately kind of a knee-jerk reaction back against that. I think the media has a really important role to play here. I mean, we see it in terms of role modeling or images that women see portrayed, whether it is in TV, film, advertising. And both at a conscious and subconscious level, these images sometimes represent lower self-esteem and can affect behavior at any age or stage of life. And yes, we do know deep down that these are crafted images, that they're unrealistic, but yet they still exert pressure on women to conform on what that perceived norm is and influence how we work, how we live, how we love and how we play. So if I can ask you, what's your opinion regarding the influence of media on views of gender? I think it has a massive role um, in influencing who we are um, and how we present ourselves and how we respond to each other. Um, I do feel like women are wiser, generally speaking, it's a terrible generalization, but we have become wiser um, through feminism, through activism, through media awareness, about like these terrible images which are kind of being projected on us and these ideas of what you can or shouldn't be. And, you know, I, I know 29-year-olds going for Botox injections. Um, and, you know, I talk about this a lot with my daughter, and we talk about the images that she sees, and we look at magazine covers, and then we look at the videos which show you how they Photoshop those covers. 
Um, so she's got a really interesting understanding of gender in society. And as I said, she sometimes calls me out on stuff. Um, the other day she decided that she didn't want to wear dresses anymore. And I said, fine, but, you know, you're going to have to do it today because we haven't done laundry. And I said to her, I don't know what your problem is. Like, wearing dresses is one of the best things about being a girl. It's like they're cool and they're easy and they're comfy to put on. And she got so mad with me. And she said, eight years old, she was like, Mama, did you hear what you just said? And I, I panicked. I was like, what did I say? What did I say? And she said, are you saying that boys can't wear dresses? So, you know, I was like, fine, you're right. Absolutely, yes. Um, so I think the new generation, you know, and I see it a lot with kind of 19-year-old friends. They're very aware of gender issues. They're very aware of um, that gender isn't a binary, that sexuality isn't a binary, that you can be anything that you want. Um, but, of course, you do have society's pushback against that. And I think the problem is, if I, think, I think women are in a better place than men right now, and I think men are struggling to navigate um, the new kind of informed, powerful woman. And I think the media messages that need to go to men are, like, really, really important right now. Uh, there, there's an amazing survey which was released, I think, this week, which looked at, it's the biggest survey ever done of such, which looks at the speaking roles for women and men in different movies. And even in the Disney Princess movies, the men get 55 to 70% of the speaking roles. And that comes down to women not being allowed to be funny. You know, there was um, an, another thing about um, Frozen, and one of the lead animators saying, well, it was really hard, you know, because we had to make her pull a funny face without looking ugly. And this idea of that woman have to be petite and pretty and um, lovely and beautiful at all times, and they can't be gross and they can't make fart jokes and they can't be evil or venal. Uh, and I think that's problematic in itself. You know, for all the kick-ass women in high heels and superhero movies fighting bad guys, that's great, but it's not the full female experience. And as long as there's only one female character or a handful of female characters, they suddenly become representative. And that's very problematic. And usually in films and cinema, you get this one representation of a woman. So you, again, you're being exposed to a gender stereotype. But I think that there's a certain amount of responsibility that comes with the individuals who are putting these messages out because they've got a responsibility on what that projection is. Absolutely, but I think a lot of people don't care. I mean, especially if we're talking about movies and TV shows, it's, um, well, I think TV shows is a much more gender parity and racial parity. But at, at the Hollywood level, it's it's about making money. Um, and then you have other people saying crazy things this week, uh, no, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one of the editors at Marvel blamed um, diversity on their slumping sales at Marvel Comics. And it turns out that that's absolutely not true. But people, people want to say that they've tried diversity. They're like, oh, look, we tried and it didn't work. Um, and it's just it's money talks. So it's not, it's not just the producers and the actors and the people in power who actually determine that stuff. It's also audiences. It's what we go and see. Yes, it's feeding the machine. Yeah. Today, we're talking to international best-selling author Lauren Bukas. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. You are listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band, also available on DSTV Channel 802. Today, we're talking to international best-selling author Lauren Bukas. 
In the previous segment of the conversation, we spoke about Lauren winning the Arthur C. Clarke Award as a life-changing event, transforming her life from that of struggling writer to launching her work into mainstream success and becoming an internationally acclaimed author. We've also spoken about the role that the media plays in terms of representing women correctly or incorrectly and the responsibility that is attached to the creators of that content to ensure that there should be greater diversity and more representative exposure of women in those spaces. Lauren, this program, Womanity, Woman and Unity, is all about gender equality. Increasingly, it's becoming more and more a global focus, and as such, taking into consideration the various challenges and successes that women's legal rights have had over the last few years, what areas do you think still need attention with respect to women? I think the most pressing issues around women's rights right now are um, education and childcare. I live in South Africa where childcare is readily available and affordable, and that makes such a difference. It allows me to work, and I don't understand why I can claim tax expenses for all kinds of things. I can claim getting my hair done as a tax expense because I'm a public figure, but I can't claim childcare, and that's crazy to me because, you know, it is, it is very much a, um, a pyramid. It's, it's a support network of women. You know, me, me being able to work and having, having a childminder who can look after my child allows me to work. Um, it, allows her, it allows me to support my family and allows her to support her family. And, of course, there's abuse in the domestic worker um, field. But it's so essential to, be able to free up women, to be, able to, to be able to work, to be able to pursue their dreams, to be able to like, go to night school, be able to get a proper education, be able to further themselves. And a lot of what you see, particularly in South Africa, is a lot of women-led households. And a lot of granny-led households, particularly in the townships. Um, and it's so essential that women get the support that they need. And that should be in the form of government grants, but it should also be in the form of really good child care, safe transportation to school, being able to just make things easier for people to be able to push themselves further, to be able to push their children further. And those are almost, I'd say, fundamental infrastructure components of society. Transportation comes up time and time again as a huge topic, particularly for, for women and safety. Absolutely. Childcare, uh, when we've had conversations with parliamentarians, they said that when the ANC came into power, there obviously weren't any women in the past, that all of the facilities were male-dominated, but what they instituted was being able to have childcare facilities available and said that revolutionized their work because it meant that their children were in a safe place. It meant that they could work later and still be able to, to see them. And education is, is just paramount. Without education, you simply have no choices. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like the kind of violence against women that we're seeing right now really wants to hold women down and wants to keep women in a very particular place where they are subservient, where they are wives and moms um, and are there to look after men. And men need to step up and look after themselves. And they need to feel the power in doing that. But our society has been structured in such a way that women are there to be in the support roles. There was a recent study which came out which had an academic looking at um, the acknowledgement sections of various books. And the number of male authors, even today, who thank their wives for raising the kids, running the household, 
doing all the editing and helping retype the entire manuscript was off the charts. And to be able to succeed in life, what you need is a wife. You need a wife. And women don't have wives. Women are the wives. Um, in terms of like having someone to do all that stuff for you. And we, we need to be able to move past that. We need to be able to move into a position where women are allowed to be successful, where they are allowed to achieve and be able to write their own damn papers and their own books. Um, but to have the support network which kind of allows for that. An unpaid labor, whether it is care, whether it is about retyping husbands' manuscripts, or contribute to society, these are, it's culture, it's, it's social glue, it's cohesion, that without those components, things would fall apart. Absolutely. I have to say that I had a very supportive partner uh, for a lot of my life. And um, while I was married, my, my now ex-husband was incredibly supportive. He, and he, you know, he cooked and he cleaned and he did all of those things as well. Um, and it was very much a partnership. And I think that was a very good model um, for other relationships and for the way people should be in the world. We spoke about women tending to occupy support roles, an area that I think is of strong interest, and particularly with role modeling effects, is about female leadership. So if I can ask you, what is your opinion of female leadership, whether it's in government, education, business, entertainment, or any other field? I think we make the mistake of assuming that women will be kinder and gentler and better than men, but women can also be evil and greedy and awful. And, you know, there, there were women involved in the offenses at the Abu Ghraib prison, you know, women Americans. Uh, there are female suicide bombers, Margaret Thatcher, Theresa May. These are, these are not good people in the world. Um, of course, we should, we should get more female leadership. Uh, there's an amazing organization I recently found out about in France called Utopia, and it's an NGO that specifically goes to people who would not normally run um, for politics or to be a politician and approaches them uh, to try and get them to get involved in politics. So we need less politicians who are lifetime politicians and more people who are doing good in their, in their respective fields. I think, you know, the old adage about power corrupting is, holds absolutely true. And I think being in a broken system isn't going to help you very much. You know, patriarchy works because it's a very old system. It's worked for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And a lot of what happens in power is that women slip on those tasseled loafers. And they do exactly the same things that the men do, and not, not least because they're trying to prove themselves to men. I was hanging out with the Cape Town Metro Police a few months ago, and we were doing ride-alongs, and... And I asked them, you know, about female gangsters and what would happen if all the men disappeared, which is one of the themes of my new book. And they said, oh, no, the women are even worse. They said the female gangsters have more to prove. And, you know, the leader of the Americans gang, which is a notorious gang in Cape Town, was for a very long time Mama American. Um, and she's recently handed over to her son-in-law. But this idea that women are just naturally better and nicer is, is very false. It's a, it's a benevolent sexism. Often I wonder, though, if part of the traits that we see coming through in leadership is because that women haven't had female role models in place, that they're almost emulating what exists and what is the norm, and that has occasionally made people harder because they are competing with men. Absolutely. And, and you know, just because you have a female leader doesn't mean that society magically changes around her. Um, so you will have all that pressure. You will have the sexism. 
and and that's very disheartening. So yes, we do absolutely need more role models, but I think we also need to be very aware of placing people on impossible pedestals and then also treating them as representative. Well, this female leader is evil and venal, so therefore female leaders will never work. Um, so, so it is allowing them to be human as well as women. That's a hard task for anyone in the public eye of being human and the public not finding fault because of that humanity. One area that... I think as sometimes it's regarded as controversial is about gender quotas in the workplace. They're not always universally accepted, but I would argue that they're a necessity to help promote equality and increase the ratio of women in decision-making roles. What's your view regarding legislation and using it to drive behavioral change? I think change is hard and I think people are lazy. So to have a legislative impetus to, to force people to actually look further afield, to try and you know, identify other people, to bring them up, is a good thing. Turning more towards a personal perspective, so looking at it from your, your writing point of view, getting published isn't easy. Can you please tell us some of those moments when all the hard work that you put into building your characters, establishing the plots, whether it was the first, the second, or the fifth book, that it finally paid off and you saw your publications sitting on bookshelves of famous bookstores, whether that be in the virtual space or the physical space? You know, it was a very hard journey. Um, So people look at my career from the outside and it looks like... I was kind of just swept off my feet to stardom and I was discovered and it was all easy. But what I've learned is that writing is, you know, 10% inspiration and uh, being creative and being talented. And it's 10% um, being just absolutely lucky, sheer bloody luck, being in the right place, meeting the right person, having someone give you a break. And the rest of it is just blood, sweat and tears. And it's rolling with the gut punches, and you get knocked down, and you have to get back up, and you have to spit out your bloody teeth, and you have to get back in the ring. And a friend of mine talks about how we all know writers who are, you know, who are better than us, who write the most beautiful stories, but they gave up, because publishing is hard, and it's very difficult to to actually get your work out into the world. With my first novel, Moxieland, um, I, I tried to sell it for a year, um, I rewrote it several times. I got rejected by Philip K. Dick's agent, and uh, I, was, I remember being at work at the animation studio that I worked at at the time, and I was crying on the balcony. And, you know, people look at that, the, you know, the long list of awards, and they don't, they don't see that stuff. Um, and they don't see me, like, you know, getting really bleak about somebody's bad review on Twitter. Um, because it's hard not to take all that stuff on board, and it's hard not to have your inner critic overwhelm um, all the other praise, which doesn't kind of seem surreal anyway. So it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, but I think it's important to, you know, if this is something you want, then you have to keep trying. And you can, I love the Ratatouille quote, you know, anyone can learn to cook, but not everyone can be a great chef. Well, anyone can write a book. Um, doesn't mean it's necessarily going to get published, um, and it doesn't mean you're going to be J.K. Rowling. But if you want to write, you should write, and you should try. Um, just don't necessarily give up your day job just yet. Often you hear about the number of rejections that people experience for these 
publications which become phenomena, I think that there's a place for everyone, mm-hmm. and whether that is even going the self-publishing route. But the message that I, I hear from you is never give up, whatever it takes, mm-hmm. and hard work. Because it sounds like when you were talking about the 10% of the 10%, mm-hmm. that there is an 80% gap that is just about sheer determination Absolutely. and pushing through. Sheer bloody, it's 80% sheer bloody-minded determination to just do it anyway. Um, and actually the rejection can be quite nice sometimes because you can be like, oh yeah, I'll show you. Um, and that's always, a, revenge is always a good motivator. <laughs> It is, and hopefully you get a different review the next time around. <laughs> One of the questions that I ask my guests on the show who've made tremendous achievements in their respective fields of expertise is about some of the factors that have contributed to their success. Clearly, hard work has been one of the core ingredients in your life, as well as perseverance. What would you say are some of the other drivers to your success? Um, I think crippling self-doubt is a big factor in that. Do you know about the Dunning-Kruger effect? Please share it. Essentially, it's that um, the more competent you are, the better you are at what you do, the more you know about how far away, how far you're falling short. Let me, let me start that again. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is that the better you are at what you do, means that you are more aware of what the giants in the field are doing. And you unfairly compare yourself to them. Um, because we all consume at a higher level than we produce. So I read books that by writers where I'm never going to be able to be that good, ever. Um, and then I look at my own writing, and I'm like, oh, what am I even doing? This is ridiculous. Whereas the most incompetent among us are full of bravado and confidence because they just don't know any better. Um, so that's something, that's a nice little motivator I like to uh, hold on to on those long dark nights of the soul when I'm staring at the blank page, um, you know, waiting for the blood to come. But, um, so yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely part of it because I think, I think also that self-doubt is a motivator um, to push yourself further and that when you're afraid it means that you're, you're not playing it safe, that you're doing something different, that you are kind of heading out into dark waters um, and stormy seas and... It's going to, you know, it's going to be made an amazing discovery on the other side, as opposed to just playing it safe, you know, dabbling in the shallows, and and sometimes it's hard because sometimes I just want to go back to the nice shallows and splash around. But when you stretch those boundaries, that's when you realise that boundaries almost don't exist. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, I, I find writing hard. I find it very difficult and um, lonely, which is also why I work with other people around me. Um, but yeah, it, it's remarkable to have written a book and to have people respond to it and to see people engaging with your world and these this incredible act of telepathy between something that you've written and the way it has this chemical reaction in somebody else's mind. And they bring all their experience and who they are to the text and it becomes a conversation between the book and them um, and it's, it's also a conversation you're not part of as the author mm-hmm. like I, I'm not there I don't, I don't know how you feel the book um, so it, it's a very strange process but yes that is that is incredibly rewarding and amazing to see and to have people see what you're doing you know the, the most amazing reviews or comments I get from people where they actually really connect with something that I've done in the book which I wasn't necessarily aware that I was doing where they say something like, oh, you know, um, in the opening of Broken Monsters, 
the deer boy is clearly, you killed Mr. Tumnus from Narnia. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is. That is what I did. I killed Mr. Tumnus. That's brilliant. Um, and to speak to the scenes and to speak to the kind of personal experience, it, that's, it's amazing. Yeah, it goes back to those one-on-one conversations that they're having without you, but engaging with your text. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that for every reader, they've got a unique experience. Absolutely. Um, and that's, that's a crazy special thing to be able to do in the world, um, to be able to start these conversations in other people's heads. It's kind of like a mind virus, really. That's a good expression. You said earlier in the conversation that you knew you wanted to write when you were five years old. Could you share with us some of the pivotal moments in your life growing up and what influenced you? Um, my parents were a huge influence. They were always incredibly supportive um, and creative and didn't quite play by the rules. Um, not that they did anything criminal, just, you know, like um, they were rebellious and cheeky. Non-stereotypical. Absolutely. And although they weren't part of the struggle um, against apartheid in South Africa, they, did, uh, they were very involved through their church and they helped start Habitat for Humanity in Johannesburg. Um, and, you know, so, so I definitely had a more sane childhood growing up um, with those particularly liberal parents um, and this radical idea that black people were people too, which, which back then was a radical idea for white South Africans. Um, so, yeah, so and my mom was very creative. My mom uh, would tell us stories and make them up along the way. She got me into comic books. Um, I got my sex education from her Barbarella comic, which was lying around. Well, it wasn't lying around. It was on the top shelf, but I knew that's where the good stuff was. Um, She always read to us. I read The Hobbit when I think I was about six years old, um, and I just highlighted all the parts I didn't understand, and my dad would explain to me that night. And um, I would write stories for my brother. He was away at boarding school, and I would just kind of write. I basically put together a magazine and would send him stories. And I just, I, I just wanted to write. I just wanted to write novels. And when I was 17, I wrote my first novel, which is going to stay in a drawer where it belongs for all eternity, and I will issue strict instructions on my deathbed that it should be burned. Um, but it was an epic fantasy, and I finished it. I wrote a 60,000-word novel when I was, like, um, 17, which makes it more ironic that at 40 years old, I'm like, ah, how do I do this again? Because my 17-year-old self knew how. Well, what if you haul out the 17-year-old self and make that uh, another task? Absolutely. Um, I, I recently found in, in an old box uh, some stories that I'd written in, like, I don't know, grade 8, and they're hilarious and wonderful. And looking back at that, I think about how proud my kid self would be of me and how she would also think I was completely full of nonsense and kind of look at me and be like, what are you, what are you even complaining about? You've got, like, this dream life. It's amazing. Just shut up and write. Reflecting as you have now on on the past and moving towards the future, what would you say has been the best life lesson that you've learned so far? I think that you... There there are a couple of things. One is that you should be cheeky and ask for what you want in life. Um, And the worst anyone is ever going to say is no. Um, The other is that you should take the work seriously but never take yourself seriously because that way lies ego madness um, and Trumpism. And it's also, yeah, to just shut up and write. Um, That the muse rocks up when you sit down to do the work, and sometimes she'll be there and sometimes she won't. 
I went to see a sports psychologist at one point when I was struggling to write, um, when I was struggling to write Moxieland back in the day. And I'd interviewed him for a magazine article I was doing. And he said that, you know, I said to him, I was like, I was very depressed. I, I said, you know, I just, I don't know why I can't write. Like, I used to have this golden glow which would, like, carry me through. And now, like, I just can't find the magic motivation fairy. And he said, well, you know, there is no magic motivation fairy. And the reason the Springbok rugby players that he works with get up at 5 a.m. and run around the rugby field like 40 times at like 5 o'clock in the morning in pouring rain is not because they're carried by the golden glow or the magic motivation fairy. It's because they said they would. So it's about personal responsibility and being responsible to your childhood self and to your dreams. Self-discipline. Yep. You mentioned... Although, you know, I just want the magic motivation fairy. <laughs> Oh, Seriously. I'd love the golden glow. I know. <laughs> Wouldn't life be easy? <laughs> Reading between the lines, or actually listening between the lines, you said that you're working on another novel, and again, it seems like it's going to be another feminist publication. It's on a world without men, or a world almost without men. A world almost without men. Mm. Is there anything that you can share with us, or do we have to wait? I think you're going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait. Yeah. But Do it's basically we... about a mom trying to protect her son, who's one of the survivors, um, from a world which is not the utopia you might think it would be. And how long do we have to wait for, Lauren? That'll be out in 2018. 2018. Mm. Perfect. We will watch the space. And Excellent. is there a working title? Uh, mother, motherland, but that might change. We look forward to it. Thank you. Now, lastly, we are unfortunately running out of time. Can I please ask you, in closing the conversation, to share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to women in Africa who are listening to us today? I think fight for your dreams. It's about determination. It's about getting up and doing it anyway. And I know that for many people it's very, very, very difficult and that the system is not on their side. And, you know, that might be a little bit rich coming from me as a white South African who grew up under apartheid where everything, everything was geared for me to succeed. And I know that people struggle with desperate poverty and with violence in their communities and with childcare and raising a family and managing their lives and managing disease or chronic conditions. And I think it's, you know, don't, don't give up on your dreams, but also be kind to yourself. Do, do what you can when you can. Um, I think what I would also like to add is that um, you should fight for your dreams, but you should also fight for justice, for women's rights, for equality, for protection, um, and the freedom for other women to pursue their dreams and their lives. I think that's an important sense of responsibility, that it's not just about your own end game, but it's about helping others along the way. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. That was a lovely interview. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman and Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective, and we have been talking to international best-selling author Lauren Bukas.